Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined today by Ms. S., who is the subject of our very first episode. If you haven't heard it, give it a quick listen uh, just to get up to speed. I will give a quick summary, but certainly it does not include all of the details of the case that you may want to know. We are sponsored by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and by QXMD. I've been using QXMD throughout my residency, and I've found it to be super helpful for finding up-to-date, really useful articles that I use every day. And it sends messages to my phone to remind me that I have new articles to read. So go give that a look. I'm going to give a quick summary here. So Ms. S uh, is a young woman with a history of early onset diabetes. In the fall of 2016, she developed symptomatic heart failure, a forehead and anticubital fossa lesion, and parotid gland swelling. She is found to have lymphadenopathy in the chest and abdomen, as well as severe mitral regurgitation with pulmonary hypertension and severe coronary artery disease. After cabbage and MVR in June of 2017, an internal mammary lymph node biopsy demonstrated non-necrotizing granulomas in keeping with sarcoidosis. She subsequently developed multiple episodes of recurrent neurologic symptoms associated with progressive ischemic infarcts and severe occlusive cerebrovascular disease of unknown etiology. She was treated with prednisone and methotrexate and has since been able to taper off her prednisone entirely. Earlier this year, there were two episodes, I understand, of amaurosis fugax, but multiple surveillance MRIs have essentially showed no progression. In our initial podcast, we discussed that patients with sarcoid are at increased risk of stroke, but that this was likely on the basis of premature atherosclerosis, much more commonly than granulomatous CNS angiitis. So with that, I'll introduce Ms. S. Ms. S., thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. The purpose of these follow-up interviews is really to get a sense of what your experience was like going through the medical system as someone without a clear diagnosis. And while you ultimately did get a diagnosis, it took a long time. And before we started recording, you had you had been talking about how it was it, there was quite a delay before you really got to the bottom of things. Do you think that you can speak to that a little bit and elaborate on what that was like, the waiting game that you had to play? No, absolutely. It was uh, just, I initially had symptoms in 2016. I had reported that, you know, they've been giving me x-rays and all this, you know, tests. And they, you know, they found out that I had a rip in my heart tear, maybe about February or March, and they were going to get me in to get that repaired. Um, I still had um, heart failure symptoms throughout the whole episode. And to get into the hospital, I needed to go through um, a few procedures in order to be fully admitted to the hospital for the full surgery. And so that took a long time. Uh, they, you know, they, they start with, let's say, an MRI, and then a two, three weeks later, maybe a CT scan. It just, it was in a few weeks interval, and it was taking way too long. And at that point, by the close to end of May, I was just, I was um, not able to breathe and no, properly. And I was a dematis. I was coughing and throwing up. I couldn't sleep at night because I was, um, you know, sweating profusely. So I literally phoned my cardiologist's office and said, look, this is what's happening. I cannot wait another few weeks for another test. Like I said, I need help right now. And they booked me for uh, a angiogram one week later, uh, end of May, actually May 31st of 2017. And that's when they found out 
oh my goodness, you know, you not only have a heart tear, you have, you know, three bypasses and, you know, your heart rate is sky high, your blood pressure is sky high, this is sky high. And so after the angiogram, the doctor, you know, told me all of this and I just smiled at him and I said, yes, I know. And he literally just told me I'm just too dangerous to, you know, leave the hospital. I said, you're just too dangerous. You can't leave the hospital. So it was a journey. We definitely we run into that frequently where it takes the symptoms to get worse or the development of a new symptom before people put a case together. And sometimes when someone has nonspecific symptoms and they come into the office or the emergency department or wherever, the patient comes in saying it's an emergency. And and in essence, sometimes they get sent home saying like, well, come back when it's a catastrophe, right? Like, come back when it's so bad that we definitely know what you have. And I, I get the sense from you that you kind of felt that way, that like you were getting sicker and sicker and you weren't things weren't moving as quickly as possible. So ultimately, like you said, you kind of had to take it into your own hands and, and uh, advocate for yourself. Have you still had to advocate for yourself throughout your care? Or have you found some allies in the medical system who have helped push things along for you? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, even in the hospitals, you know, I was in the cardiology unit, I was admitted to cardiology unit. And, you know, I had, you know, a few uh, registered nurses that were on my side. And like, you know, they, they were, you know, um, supporting me and kind of even talking to the triage team, and letting them know that, you know, I needed a surgery, you know, I was pretty much top of the priority list to get a surgery because of my age and condition. And I had a lot of supporters. I actually gained um, a few, um, you know, people to help me during this whole process. So it wasn't all negative. Like I got a good cardiologist, a rheumatologist, a, a neurologist. So, you know, it, it did end up well, but it was it was a long journey. We are going to talk a little bit about the bad side of things. But you actually pointed out such an important item, which is that sometimes there is some silver lining or there are some positive things that do come out of being sick. Not that anyone should have to be sick to, to, to have those good things. Were there any other positive things that came out of your experience? You know, it's it's really interesting to ask that because I am I actually work in the healthcare as well and I actually um, take care of senior citizens. So, you know, I've always been on the side where I'm like helping people and I've never been on the receiving side of it. And it's really humbling to experience what it feels like to be a patient, to, to be on that side where you actually need help and you have to like humbly humble yourself to accept the help. Some seniors I work with can't accept the fact that they can't do things that they did before and they need the help. And, and so I kind of learned to be able to sympathize and understand my clients more, you know, my, the seniors more. So that I think that was one positive thing, definitely. So it's given you kind of this this different perspective on absolutely. what it's like to be a Ab- patient. Absolutely. It was humbling. So you went pretty quickly, uh, you know, not as quickly as you'd like, but relatively quickly from being overall a healthy young woman with diabetes in the background, but a healthy person to being a sick person. Can you tell me kind of how that felt in your head? How did you actually like think through and and manage that emotionally? Well, you know, I mean, I went from having, you know, zero meds, just taking like vitamin supplements, you know, um, to to having all these medications, especially very strong medications like the methotrexate. And um, it's just, you know, it's, you know, sometimes I really wish I didn't have to take it, but I know I have to. And I'm the kind of person who like kind of thinks you know, more positive, like, I, I have to take this to, you know, to survive. So there's nothing I can do, except embrace it, accept it. I know some people can't do that. But you know, that's just who I am and my personality. So, of course, you know, I would like to live without medications for sure. But 
for now, I'm just accepting, embracing it, trying my best and just living my life. Do you think that this is a little, this is a bit of a, a tangent, but like, do you think that it's easier to take medications that instantly make you feel better as opposed to medications your doctor tell you they will keep you feeling good? Well, you know, for me, it's just about the outcome. And I mean, if there is a medications that would better my condition, but for example, it would have a very negative side effect. Then I would have to outweigh the pros and cons before I take it. You know, I mean, there's no medication that, like, for example, that you take that would, the cancer would disappear, for example. You know, I mean, there's, there's always improvement. But for me, it's just, you know, whatever I have to take, I take. And um, I have to assess the risk of, of taking certain medications. If there's a medication, as I said, if it, the sarcoidosis can disappear, if it can improve within time, definitely I'll consider taking it. So That's all so true. Where did you go for, or who did you turn to for information about medications? Because methotrexate is kind of a classic one, where if you look online, the side effects look really scary. And, you know, 90% of people who take it feel great. They actually feel better. The medication works really nicely. Uh, How did you kind of square those things together? Who helped you navigate that? Well, it was actually a rheumatologist that had prescribed me the methotrexate. And actually, I was on oral, and now I'm an injectable. And, you know, she was the one that gave me the information. I also looked online about that. And, uh, like, it's interesting you say some people feel better or they feel great because sometimes... I don't feel good. Like they inject after I inject myself, I actually do it right before I go to bed or else I actually start feeling nauseous and kind of a dizzy. So I think those medications are like a hard sell, right? You say, great, the prednisone definitely made you feel better, right? Like we all agree that that reduced a bunch of your symptoms. Absolutely. The one that's going to keep you feeling good and help you get off prednisone is also the one that makes you feel nauseous or have headaches. Mm -hmm. But then when you're on it and you're feeling good, you're told that means it's working. If if you don't have any symptoms, that means it's working. Same with like blood pressure medications, right? Like most people don't have symptoms of blood pressure. They just have the late, the future problem, right? Like future Daniel's problem is if he has a heart attack or stroke. But today Daniel's problem is I don't like taking medications. That can be really hard, I think, for many people to to manage it seems like you have kind of found a, a good balance for yourself, a good understanding of how your medications work for you. Most of my medications, you know, it's, it's it does work. I would say it does work. You know, I mean, it's not getting any worse. Obviously, it's working. But I have to exchange a lot um, to get that benefits. Like I like I'm more tired than usual. Or again, as I said, I, I can get nauseous and dizzy. So instead of going out, going for a jog, I have to lie down and sleep for a few hours. So, you know, definitely. But I have to do what I have to do. And it's kind of like at least, you know, I'm very I'm limited in what I can do compared to before. But the way I see it is I'm, I'm very grateful because I can still do a lot of things that I want to do, like going on a walk or going to work, which is a very big thing. You know, yes, despite having all these medical problems, I can still drive to work and I can still, you know, work normally. Like if, if, if you saw me working at my workplace, you wouldn't even know there was anything wrong with me. Kind of like a balance. Yeah, just find the balance, find the medium and just, you know, like find what makes you happy. How did you actually mention this uh, about exercising and you threw that in there casually like it's not a big deal. But, you know, I think healthy people struggle to exercise all the time. And 
people who have various illnesses or on various medications or who have blood pressure problems, we like really want to encourage to exercise. How did you, how do you find the motivation to actually keep that up? Because let's say you are on medications that sometimes won't make you feel well or take away your energy or that little extra bit of energy you need to exercise. How do you integrate that into your usual um, schedule? The key is to balance, just do it in balance. Like don't, for me, my rule is don't push myself. Like I know my limits. Don't push myself. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not going to be able to run for two hours on the treadmill. I know I can't do that. That's pushing myself too much. And, and so, you know, like there will be repercussions if I push myself. So, you know, if I'm going to the gym and, you know, it, it might take me, th there's people that are there for three, four hours going hardcore on their workout. But I just got to remember for myself that, well, I'm not them. I don't have the same condition of them. Like I, you know, I'm different. So I just have to pace myself and take it easy. So I don't, even when I go to the gym, I, I do go on the treadmill. I do go on the bike. I do weightlifting, but I just pace myself and go slow. If, if, you know, if I have to take a break in between, I do it because the most important thing for me is to do it. It doesn't mean how hard I do it, how long I do it. I do it. That's my main thing. You're a great motivational speaker. I'm going to bring you into my clinic to talk to <laughs> all you. of my patients. You kind of said it, those are, there are two important things in there that I hear. And one is that you are realistic about the exercise you can actually do and the energy you have. But you also mentioned that you do recognize that it is different than your life before. Does that still bother you? Or have you been able to kind of come to terms with new limitations? But this is life. I've um, actually been able to accept that and to accept that this is part of my life. As I said, you know, there's many things I can't do. For an example, go hiking up a hill for two hours, <laughs> going on a roller coaster, bungee jumping, for example. But, you know, this is my life and I'm okay with it. You know, I just, you know, go slow, go at my own pace. And my, my key factor is being happy, being positive, you know. So that's my main goal. So it's not too much of a struggle for me. So you, you prioritize your happiness as number one and then everything else out else on the list you kind of figure out as you go. Uh, I recall from when you and I had met initially that your family was a big part of your life. How did your illness affect your relationship with your family, if at all? You know what? I think it brought us closer because, you know, um, you know, everybody pitches in to help me, you know, especially when I was discharged, you know, taking me to the clinic for my, um, I got uh, prednisone uh, injected injects IV and you know they took me there and they knew I would get be very 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 sick so they drove me waited for me until I was done and took me home and I think it just united my you know family a bit more closer and working together and you know everybody's trying to work together to help me and just you know make me feel better so so that's one positive thing how about your relationships with like friends or co-workers how how did they understand your illness because you don't necessarily tell everyone that you know about every aspect of your disease or your limitations. And because from the outside, you may actually look totally healthy, they won't necessarily understand that it's actually hard for you to do certain things and not others. Well, you know, I th I think that they sympathize with me. And actually, that made me realize you know, how much they care about. I mean, I, I knew they cared, but, you know, it kind of truly shows what kind of person they are and, and how much they care for me. And, you know, as for my limitations, you know, I just straight out tell them, like if they invite me to go for a two-hour hike, I said, I can't. 
and they're very understanding. And you know, I've I've had several of my friends tell me that you are very strong, and I admire you, like for what I've been through medically. So I think to some, I can be an inspiration to to you know think positive. As I said, I'm a very positive person. So maybe that's another silver lining that you've uncovered some kind of qualities that you possess as well. So now you're in, as far as I understand, a bit more of a stable stage of your disease. You've been generally healthy over the past year. You've come off of some of the medications that you were on. You've not had any major changes or progression of, of your, uh, your illness. How does, how, what do you do with that information? Does that start to change the way that you function every day? No, absolutely not. It just, you know, pushes me to continue on and to see, you know, if I could better myself. As I said, you know, as you know, I have diabetes. So, you know, just motivates me. Okay, I've gone through one hurdle past that. Now I'm going to focus on my diabetes. So now I'm, you know, doing things to help with my diabetes. Um, you know, one thing I do is, of course, going to the gym, you know, two, three times a week. Um, but now I'm started to, you know, look into, um, you know, like my diet changes and, you know, taking more vitamin pills and fasting and all that. So I'm focused on um, bettering my diabetes. If I can't reverse it, at least make it better. <laughs> so. You still have a couple of doctors who are helping to take care of you. When we see people in hospital, we kind of think as the family doctor, as the actual the coordinator of care, or at least the person who is going to see the the patient on the mo- most frequently. So in hospital, we actually see like probably the most important person. There's the patient number one, obviously, um, and then number two, probably the family doctor to help pull things together. But I think that's a really tough job when you have all these different specialists giving various opinions all at the same time, and there's a lot of noise. How do you and your family doctor work through all of the different things that you have to do together? It's interesting you say that. I I actually, my GP does help me. I mean, he is in my, you know, my circle of care team. But, you know, my main person that I always go to is my rheumatologist because she is the one that, um, you know, helps me with my sarcoidosis and the other symptoms that I have. Um, Of course, any lab results or anything that she finds out, you know, she forwards to my GP and my neurologist. But, you know, the main person that I I trust with my care is um, my rheumatologist. So at this point, you're, uh, as a patient, you are a, a veteran, right? You've been through a lot of doctors, a lot of appointments, multiple hospitals, surgeries, etc. Do you have any specific suggestions for other, other patients in general, but, you know, to a degree, patients who have really complicated disease? You know, just to, um, you know, the main thing for me, you know, how I live my life is just, um, you can't be 100% stress-free. But, you know, there's things you can do, um, the way you can think that reduces the stress. Because to me, this is what I realized in the hospital. Stress can cause illnesses, whether it's cancer, whether it's, you know, whatever. So just to really live your life, like, positive And just uh, my number one factor for me was my work. I love what I do. I go in smiling. I go home smiling, and this is not even a joke. So just to just just to stay positive, and I know it's easier said than done, and it's not easy for a lot of people. But I mean, that's my advice. Thank you so much. That's really nice to hear. I really appreciate you coming in to chat with us. You're welcome.